we finished several weeks ago before Christmas came along with Revelation 19, talking about the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to the earth. Today we continue our study in Revelation 20, focusing on the period of time which we typically refer to as the Millennial Kingdom of our Lord. Now, as we did with the second coming of Jesus Christ, I spent a, a week reading to you the, the text of the Scripture, talking about what the actual meaning of the text at hand is. And then the next week we went to all of the different prophetic links within the chain and sought to use uh, Scripture to compare with Scripture, to interpret Scripture, to get a broader essence and a broader understanding of exactly what that time period would look like, uh, of the teaching as it relates to that time period and trying to put those points together. We're going to do, uh, as it were, the same thing this time. This week I'm going to uh, focus primarily on Revelation chapter 20. It's actually primarily verses uh, 1 through 6, not 1 through 7. My apologies for having 1 through 7 there. It'll be 1 through 6. And then at uh, in the weeks to come, next week and the week after, we're going to take time to focus in on various elements of the promises and prophecies as it related to the kingdom in order to give us a, a, a heightened understanding of what the kingdom will look like. And one of the reasons why that is is because we really don't see much in Revelation 20 itself about this kingdom. But that doesn't mean there's not plenty of teaching about it in the Bible. As a matter of fact, I, I cannot... Uh, there's no way without an entire sermon series that I could possibly share with you all of the promises in the Old Testament as it relates to the kingdom. They are everywhere. They are, they are everywhere. They, they, they are, there's so much of the Old Testament that is devoted to God's promises to the nation of Israel about His kingdom that we could spend weeks and weeks on end as it stands. This week we'll talk about Revelation 20. We'll go to some Old Testament elements as it relates to Daniel putting all the pieces together as to what we've already learned. Next week and the week after, there will be two weeks where we study elements of the kingdom because I simply could not fit it into one. Now, last time we talked about Jesus' return and we connected those events to the teachings of Revelation 14 and 16. The armies of the earth gather to the valleys of Jezreel and Jehoshaphat. The nation of Israel is in distress at this time. We, we read all the prophecies on that. And then our Lord returns. In Revelation 19, this return bore the image of the Lord coming on a white horse with his vesture dipped in blood and the name on it which no man knew, a name also written on him which is faithful and true. And we connected all of this to the promises of Jesus, uh, excuse me, um, well, the promises of Messiah in the prophets. Presuming, as Zechariah told us, that Jesus' feet would touch the Mount of Olives, that it would cleave into, that the remnant of Israel would see Jesus, they would look upon Him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for Him, they will believe on Him, and so all Israel will be saved, as Paul told us in Revelation chapter, uh, excuse me, Romans 11. Now, at that time, we also read finally, uh, within the, the, the setting that we studied, that the beast and the false prophet, that would be this one that we have come to term as Antichrist. Remember, Antichrist is not actually a name uh, um, that, that's explicitly given to him in any of the prophecies about him. It's spoken of in 1 John as, as Antichrist will come. And yet, as we, we see him in, in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, as we see him in the Old Testament, he's called the 11th horn, he's called the prince that shall come. He's called the man of sin. He's called the, the son of perdition. He is called by any number of names. We regularly call him Antichrist, a fine name for him. And Antichrist and the false prophet will be cast alive into the lake of fire. And they will be the first two to populate the lake of fire and the only two to populate the lake of fire until after this 1,000 year reign of Christ that we'll speak of today. And that leads us to the teaching in Revelation 20, beginning of verse 1 where the Bible says this, And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. So we see an angel and he descends from heaven. This is likely the fourth time in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ that we have seen an angel descend from heaven in one of John's visions. I say likely because there is one time where it's called a star, but we have interpreted the star as falling from heaven in that case to be an angel and um, there's no 
reason to assume otherwise based upon the interpretation of the text. So that one was found in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. And there the, the star falls from heaven with a key in his hand to the bottomless pit. And remember, he opens the bottomless pit and all of those, the, those demonic hordes come out of the bottomless pit um, and, and torment men uh, for many months. Then we see in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, where an angel descends with uh, and he puts one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, and he has a little book in his hand, which he reads, if you recall that. Then we saw an angel descend in Revelation chapter 18, verse 1, and he descends in order that he might declare the fall of Babylon. And then finally, we see it here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, where again an angel descends, and he has in his hand this time a great chain along with the keys to the bottomless pit. So, as I just mentioned a moment ago from Revelation 9, this is the second time that an angel descends out of heaven with that key, the key to the bottomless pit, in his hand. And we were introduced to the king of these hordes of de uh, these demonic hordes that came out of the bottomless pit in Revelation 9 his name was Abaddon or Apollyon now we have also talked at various times about the distinct character of the bottomless pit we've not really covered that heavily within this series I have spoken of this before when we've talked about the afterlife and some of the, the, the characteristics as the Bible teaches about the afterlife that generally speaking within our circles we regard the bottomless pit as an area whereby disobedient angels are set aside for a time um, due to various aspects of disobedience. We uh, see the Bible connect that disobedience specifically to some events that took place prior to the flood in Noah's day. There's theories as to what those events were, um, but nobody knows for certain all of what happened at that time. In the New Testament, we see um, some elements of the bottomless pit and angels who were cast out of people perhaps being sent to the bottomless pit at that time. So it was, it's not just populated of angels from the time, what we call the pre-diluvian time or the time before the flood, but also other angels, uh, seem demonic angels, of course, uh, disobedient angels, seem to have been populating this bottomless pit where they are held in chains awaiting a time of judgment. Now, we're not going to get into all of that today. We're not going to talk through all of that. I have preached on it before, and you can certainly go back and, and listen to those messages online um, if you are interested in learning more, and, and, and at some point it'll come up again, and no, most certainly we will cover it. But here we see this angel descend out of heaven with a key to the bottomless pit, and this time what's different is that he has chains in his hand. And so the Bible says in verses 2 and 3, And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil, and Satan and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So the Bible says that this angel takes hold on the dragon and he has the chain in his hand in order that he might bind this dragon. The dragon, as we see it here, links us to John's vision in Revelation 12. If you recall, in Revelation 12, John saw a vision of a dragon and that dragon had seven heads and ten horns and he sought to destroy the seed of the woman. And then uh, when, when the, the, the man child was born and he was taken up into heaven, uh, when the dragon recognized that his time was short, he poured all of his fury out upon the remnant of the woman's seed. That would be, of course, Israel as we identified it and as we interpreted it. And we have called this dragon Satan, not only because of his distinct character, as we saw it in Revelation 12, but also because of what we find by way of an identification of who this dragon is. This dragon is described here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, as that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan. So he is called that old serpent. And this links the dragon with the temptation of Eve and the rebellion of Adam in the Garden of Eden. As a matter of fact, this is the only place explicitly where we see that link in the scriptures. The link between Satan and that serpent. He is also called the devil. That word devil meaning slanderer or accuser. He is called the great accuser of the brethren. The effort of our foe to slander and accuse us before the Father. 
And then he is also called here Satan. That word meaning adversary. The adversary of God and certainly the adversary of the followers of God. So we have this link here. The dragon is that old serpent. The one all the way back to the serpent who is the devil, the great accuser of the brethren who accuses us night and day uh, uh, before the throne of God who is also the adversary. He is our great enemy. So it is that Satan, the Bible says, will be bound in chains and cast not yet into the lake of fire. Don't, don't be fooled by the cultural renditions of Satan that would seek to tell you that he is some sort of king of hell, that he's already there, that he, is, that, 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 that he rules over hell. He does not anything of the sort. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this world. He is free. He is loose. He is accusing. He is slandering. And then there's coming a day where he'll be bound for a thousand years in the bottomless pit and he will no longer be able to accuse and he'll no longer be able to slander. He'll no longer be able to tempt and he'll no longer be, a, be, be that adversary because he will be removed. He will be in that bottomless pit for 1,000 years. He will no longer be able to control the nations of this world, the leaders of this world. He will no longer be able to exercise his influence upon this world as he does today. We've talked about that in any number of contexts. That will be over for 1,000 years. The world will no longer be under his dominion. He will be bound. And this is very important. We'll talk more about this. It'll be several weeks before we get to the second half of Revelation 20. But remember when I preached on this at the beginning, the big picture, which I probably will preach that message again with everything that we know now. It's going to make a lot more sense to you uh, this time after we've learned all of these things. But remember, within that big picture, it's very important that we have this 1,000 years where Satan is not active. Because at the end of this 1,000 years, we're going to see another rebellion when Satan is loosed. And what we're going to find is throughout that 1,000 years where Jesus is physically ruling and reigning, the hearts of men are contained, but the rebellion still exists. So that when you sit across from someone and they say, the devil made me do it. Well, the devil probably certainly helped. But it's the heart of man that's the problem, not the devil. The heart of man, even without the devil, has its own set of problems. And we'll see that as we continue in a few weeks. So he will be bound for 1,000 years, after which the Bible says he must be loosed for a little season. We'll, we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So here we find that with Satan bound, thrones arise and many sit upon thrones in judgment. And John sees those who died for Christ, those who were beheaded for Jesus, those who had not worshipped the beast and his image, and those who had not taken the mark of the beast on their hands or on their foreheads, and he saw them ruling in judgment. And let's take a moment uh, to dwell upon that point once again. This is the third time that we have seen the mark of the beast come up within the scope of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Our introduction to this idea was found in Revelation chapter 13, verse 16, which described the situation as it would take place historically, that there will be a time when the world will be compelled by the false prophet to take the mark of the Antichrist, to take the mark of the beast, and uh, this will be a means by which all who are under the power of that Antichrist, all who are under the power of that system, which may not necessarily Necessarily be the whole world. Uh, it will influence the whole world, but it may not necessarily be that the whole world, there's, there, there, there's possibilities there, uh, but the whole world transitions to the system wholesale in such a short period of time. But, but within the scope of this system, all who take this will be able to continue commerce. Those who do not take this mark will not be able to buy and will not be able to sell. If a person does not have that mark, it will effectively shut them off from all of the economics the commerce of the earth. But we also mentioned that this mark represents something deeper than just an economic decision among those who receive it. It's deeper than just a secular system of transaction. Instead, 
All of the mentions of this mark are of such character that we can be sure that everyone who takes the mark is doing so deliberately, knowingly, not just to accept that they want to transact commerce, but by doing so, they are accepting Antichrist in some way, shape, or form as God. This mark will not be given deceitfully. And we've talked about this in each time that has come up. It's not as if they're going to trick people into taking it and then say, aha, now you're ours. It will be a knowing, deliberate decision. God on one side, Antichrist on the other. We might liken it very similarly to what happened in Daniel with Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. When the, when the trumpets, when the, the, the instruments play, you bow down or you don't bow down. They knew exactly what they were doing if they bowed down. They get to live. They get to continue to be leaders in Babylon. They get to continue these things, but they are bowing down to an idol. It will be the same way. It will not be a trick. It will not be some sort of backdoor. It will be you take the mark. You are acknowledging Antichrist at the expense of God. And we have to believe that because of the tremendous consequence of taking this mark that we see in the, Re- in the book of the Revelation. Now, as I say this, as I say people won't be tricked into taking the mark, what I don't mean by that is that they won't be under a strong delusion, because they will be under a strong delusion, right? There will be a deception about, but they will be exercising their will knowing what that means within this deceit, this strong delusion that God will allow to be upon people, But the point that the Bible makes quite clear is that all who take the mark will know that by doing so they are rejecting the God of the Bible. To this end, when we read in Revelation 14, verses 9 through 10, which is the second place where this comes up, that every person who takes the mark will drink of the wine of the wrath of God and shall be tormented in fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lord day and night for eternity, we must see that the mark of the beast, that taking the mark of the beast, that knowingly doing so, understanding what it means will be a point of no return. That whereas with us, in this economy and in this age, the point of no return is death. That the moment that we die, the decisions that we've made are final. That a person till the moment of their death can accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. In this particular time, it would seem that the point of no return is this mark. This will seal their judgment if they accept this mark. And all of this is consistent with what we read here in Revelation 20. That those who refuse to take the mark, those who followed Christ, are blessed. And those who did take the mark are not a part of those who are said to live and reign with Christ a thousand years. Those who died in tribulation, having not received this mark, They will live and reign with Christ a thousand years. And take note that we are speaking of those who died, not those who survived. What we'll see as we continue walking through Scripture today is that it does uh, appear quite clearly that there will be a contingency of the world who lives through the 70th week of Daniel. And all of those that live through the 70th week of Daniel will enter into the kingdom in mortal bodies, will enter into the kingdom with uh, their, their same bodies, whereas everyone who dies in Christ will receive a resurrected body and will be ushered into immortality. Whether that be Old Testament saints, New Testament believers, tribulation martyrs, it seems as though all of these will rule and reign with Christ for this 1,000 years. And those who have not died but live through the events, will remain mortal, living in this kingdom as the followers of Jesus Christ. But the world will be very different than the one that they had known before naturally because Jesus will be ruling directly, because Satan will be bound and not be able to deceive the nations. We'll talk more about the implications of that in our time together next week. Verses 5 and 6, we read this. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So in these final two verses that we study today, 
Related to the kingdom time in Revelation, we find it said specifically that the remaining dead, that would be the dead men and women who were not justified by faith. So we have the dead who would not take the mark, the dead that were martyred for Jesus Christ, the dead who have died in Christ, the dead uh, who are the righteous of the Old Testament saints, as we'll see in a little bit. All of them were resurrected. They took part in the first resurrection and they ruled and reigned with Christ. But the rest of the dead, that would be the unbelieving dead. That would be the unrighteous dead. That would be the dead that are not in Christ, the dead that have rejected him throughout the generations. They will remain dead. In other words, they'll be, they will remain in the waiting place that we call hell for these 1,000 years. Years. So we see this contrast between those that are justified by faith and those that are not justified by faith. And those that are justified by faith, we see this statement that this is a first resurrection. Jesus calls in Luke 14, 14, this the resurrection of the just. Now, as we continue to study in Revelation 20, we'll find that this first resurrection is contrasted with what is called the second resurrection. It's also called in Acts chapter 24, verse 16, the resurrection of the unjust. And what we learn by this is that it is not just believers that will experience a resurrection. Unbelievers will experience a resurrection as well. The character of each, however, will be dramatically different. So, Revelation 20 tells us, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, because upon these, those that take part in the first resurrection, the second death, that would be eternal death, has no power. Now, once again, we see the idea of two different deaths here. We see a first resurrection and a second resurrection, a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. We also see two deaths. Now, every man, with the exception of a few in Scripture, Enoch did not see death, for the Lord took him. Elijah did not see death because the chariot of fire took him. Uh, the the uh, raptured church presumably will not see death because they will be raptured and translated out of their bodies. But every other person, and we could say every man from a more general standpoint, will taste death death, right? We will all die. Everyone is going to die. Our bodies will fail and we will pass from this life into eternity. This is death because at the moment that our bodies fail, the immaterial part of us separates from the material part of us and it's called death because it's a separation. That's what death is. Death is a separation. Physically speaking, when my body dies, there's a separation of my body, the material part, from the immaterial part of me that uh, um, goes into either heaven or hell at the moment of death. But then there's also another concept of death. And we see it all throughout, particularly the New Testament, when Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death, we're seeing a different idea of death there. Certainly sin has brought physical death into this world, but when God said to Adam and Eve, do not eat of the fruit, for in the day that you eat thereof, ye shall surely die. It is not just that the moment that Adam partook of the fruit, he began to physically die. Though we can presume certainly that very soon after, at the least, he did begin to physically die, at least when the curse was placed upon him. But at the moment that he partook of the fruit, his eyes were open, knowing good and evil. He went and he sowed fig leaves. They went and they hid themselves in the garden. They felt a separation from their Creator. There was something between them and God. There was a spiritual separation whereby now they were separated from their Creator. They died. There is a separation there, a spiritual death, because sin separates us from God. The wages of sin is death, separation from God. The unbeliever is said to be dead in their trespasses and sins, meaning they are continuously separated from God because their spirits are alienated from the life of God through unbelief. And this is important because many in, in various Churches today, particularly in Reformed movements, say that a dead spirit means that the spirit is unable to identify the spiritual, that it cannot respond, that it cannot do anything because it's dead. That's not what dead means in the Scripture. 
They're imposing the idea of spirit of physical death where a body doesn't respond and can't respond to spiritual death. But the point of, of, of physical death, death physically is not so much about the lifeless body, it's about the spirit being removed from it. And spiritually speaking, death is not so much that a dead spirit cannot respond. A dead spirit is unable to identify anything spiritual. It simply means a dead spirit is separated from God, unable to certainly understand things that are spiritual. But the deadness of their spirit relates to their separation, not to their capacity. At the moment of salvation, our spirits, the Bible says, are quickened. They are made alive. They are reconciled to God. They are brought near to Him. And then as we live these Christian lives, we can either live in that which brings about death in our lives through sin, separating us from God so that we're not abiding in Him. We're quenching and grieving the Spirit. That's death, separation from God. Or we can live in the life that we've been purchased. You live in the Spirit. Let us also walk in the Spirit, Paul tells us in Galatians. To this end, we find the idea of the second death being the time when the unbeliever will finally and eternally be separated from the presence of God. The first death is the one we all experience when our bodies and our soul and spirit separate. The physical death is that. The spiritual death is an eternal separation from the Lord. And to those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, they will not see the second death. They will not experience the second death because they've been reconciled to God, because they are going to be with their Savior. But those who have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God, those who have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, will see that second death, will be separated from God for eternity. And that is the idea here. And so we have these two ideas. The first resurrection and the second resurrection. The resurrection of the just, the resurrection of the unjust. To those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, they will see the first resurrection, they will not see the second death. To those who have not accepted Jesus as their Savior, they will see the second resurrection, which is the second death. And it will be that eternal death that eternal separation from God in a place of conscious torment that we know as the lake of fire. And so we have this idea. Blessed and holy, verse 6 says, is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So verse 6 tells us that those who take part in the first resurrection will be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him, Christ, a thousand years. Now, that's as far as we are going in Revelation today. And we're going to spend the rest of this week, next week, and the week after surveying the vast quantity of information throughout both the Old and New Testament, which tells us of the particular time that we call the Millennial Kingdom. And today we're going to look at what Daniel has to say. We're going to take much of what we already covered way back at the beginning of last year as it relates to Daniel and Daniel's prophecies and the kingdom and all of those things that we've talked on. And we are going to re, uh, re-inspect them, reconsider them in relation to what we see here in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. So we begin in Daniel chapter 7 verses 1 through 3 where the Bible says this, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. And so we have this statement here that Daniel sees this vision. And let's refresh our memory on the vision. I'm not going to read it, but let's just refresh refresh our memory on what this vision revealed. Daniel saw a vision, and we're in, in this one here. And I know that that's a little pixelated, but we're in the red zone as far as this is considered. Uh, Daniel chapter 2 was the, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of the, of the, the great statue. Daniel chapter 7 is the vision that he had of the beast. And then uh, he saw a different vision in Daniel uh, 8 
and that related particularly to the Medo-Persian Empire and Greece, and then how the the, um, the leader of Greece, Antiochus Epiphanes, would be a type, a foreshadowing of Antichrist who was to come. So he sees this vision, and the first uh, part of this vision was a lion with wings, which when we studied and we, we corroborated all of this back then, uh, it, it, it corroborates to the head of gold, which is the Babylonian Empire. And then the bear with one side higher than the other, with three ribs in his mouth, and this represented the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the leopard with four heads and four wings, and that very clearly represented the Grecian Empire. Empire with Alexander the Great and then splitting into the four kingdoms of Alexander um, after his young and untimely death. And then finally, Daniel says he saw a dreadful and terrible beast with iron teeth and ten horns. And then an eleventh horn arose out of the, that beast uh, with ten horns and it plucked up three of the horns as it arose. And this eleventh uh, horn was said to be speaking blasphemies and great things against the Most High. And this beast corresponds to what, what we would regularly call the Roman Empire, but I've, I've termed it the Western world. That I believe that this is actually the Western world beginning with Rome, continuing through today, until such time that we have some uh, vestige of the Western world arise into some new conglomerate, um, you know, wh whether it be something that we have today, be it the UN or the European Union or whatever it might be, or whether it be some other new and unique conglomerate um, that ends up being forged perhaps with the elements of the Western world that aren't just connected to Europe, the United States and Canada and Australia and whatever else, Japan perhaps, and whatever else might be. We see a Western world empire that will dominate culture. It has dominated. It will continue to dominate. And um, presumably, if that interpretation is correct, it will dominate until the end. Now, following this beast, we read Daniel say this, beginning in verse 9. Daniel says, And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him. Before him, excuse me, thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there were given him dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So all of this should sound very familiar to you. Not just in that we, we spoke of Daniel 7 before and that we just read it, but as it relates to what we've been studying in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We read about a day of judgment when the Ancient of Days, that would be God the Father, issues a command and the books are opened and judgment is set before all. And the Bible says that the fourth beast in this time would be absolutely destroyed, that the fourth beast would be wiped off the face of the earth. And the Son of Man comes in the clouds of heaven, and the Son of Man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve Him. That's what we read about in Revelation 19. The day that the Son of Man returns in the clouds, right? Just as, just as we, we've read several times throughout our Revelation 19 and, and the study of the second coming. He comes back in the clouds and he comes back to establish dominion and power. And the Bible says in Daniel 7 that as Daniel is watching this, as dominion is given to the Son of Man, that the fourth beast is utterly destroyed. But, as we read about today... The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning. Notice what we read in verse 12. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a little season and time. So as Daniel is watching the Son of Man gain dominion, 
from the Ancient of Days, coming in the clouds and taking that dominion, he utterly destroys the fourth beast. But the other three beasts are, allowed, are given a chance to live. Their lives are prolonged. Only their dominion is taken away. Interesting, is it not? Now we follow this up with verse 14, where we read that all people, nations, languages will serve Christ in his kingdom. And what we find is that it seems that the Gentile nations, with the exception of this Western world empire that Antichrist will lead, will be ushered into the millennial kingdom. Their lives will be spared for a time. They will lose their sovereignty. They will lose their power to rule over their own people as they see fit. But they will not be destroyed or disbanded as long as they willingly place themselves under the theocratic authority of Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about this in prophecy next week as we talk about how Jesus will deal with the nations of the earth as he rules and reigns on this earth. Now, to end, uh, to, to this end, I, I need to make... I'd like to set your mind on a course of, of, of thought. I have very characteristically, whenever I've spoken of the kingdom and how it will work, very characteristically I've said that at the end of the, the 70th week of Daniel, Jesus Christ is going to come, he's going to destroy his enemies, and only those who are believers will be ushered into the kingdom. And I had someone come up to me quite some time ago, it was probably early uh, probably sometime in the spring, maybe early summer, as I had said this one time and said, are you sure that no unbelievers will enter into that kingdom? And I said, well, um, I, I thought so, and, and I, 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 that's kind of how my thinking has been. But then as I started thinking through all of the various um, scenarios, uh, digging into it a little bit more, I thought, well, hmm, that's a really interesting question. The question becomes, will... Everyone who enters alive into the millennial kingdom be a believer. And what I've characteristically said is that that first generation will be all believers, very similar to uh, the first generation of Israel, and then their children, of course, will each have to make a decision as they see fit. Here's a few thoughts on that. Number one, we know that every single person who took the mark will be destroyed, right? And so if they took the mark of any nation of any language, of any peoples, they will be destroyed. So if the mark is able to be assimilated very quickly on a worldwide scale, so that quite literally in the entire world, the mark is, is, is completely assumed, so that people have to make a choice. I'm either going to follow Antichrist or I'm not. Well, then yes, everyone entering the kingdom will be a believer because only those that did not take the mark will be a part of that. But if, say, various nations of this world, as we will see when we get to Gog and Magog, we'll, we'll see as, as we continue to, to study things a little bit, is it possible that there are nations of this world that didn't necessarily fully assimilate into Antichrist's leadership there's a possibility of that. And if that is the case, then maybe there are some people who never took the mark Maybe their culture or their nation had not fully assimilated into that system, while simultaneously they may not be fully invested yet in Christ, but are willing to back up and say, hey, yeah, you win, we're going to obey you. Does that seem likely to me? It does not. But is the possibility there, I suppose, within a certain scenario it might be? But the fact of the matter is this, everyone who enters into the kingdom will be under Jesus' dominion and will obey him implicitly or they will suffer dramatic consequences, consequences of which we will speak of next week. We cannot speak of today. So here's what I do know. There will be a large number of people that make it through the 70th week of Daniel without being killed. How large? I don't know. The nations around the world, men, women, children, perhaps those that were not a part of the armies that assembled at Megiddo. The remnant of the nation of Israel, most certainly, that was not killed will be a part of that. We know, as we studied from Revelation 19, in relation to Paul's teachings in Romans 11, that all Israel at the time of, of the Lord's coming will accept their Messiah, enter into the kingdom, uh, along with those who have believed on Jesus. We know that there will still be Gentile nations 
from cultural traditions of the first three beasts. That's what Daniel 7 just told us, that the fourth beast will be utterly destroyed, but the other three beasts will be allowed to live for a little while longer. So there will be cultures outside of perhaps what we would call the Western world that will be allowed to continue to function underneath the authority of the Lord. And we know that this will take place for 1,000 years where these nations will be expected to fully submit themselves to the authority and the economy of Jesus Christ, which we'll consider in the weeks to come. So that's Daniel 7. A little bit more this morning in Daniel 12. In Daniel chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, we see uh, some prophecy, we see some history, we see promises of the nation of Israel in the 70th week, and then we see um, a history of the, of the Medo-Persian and Grecian empires. And then we read this beginning in Daniel 12, verses 1 through 3. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. So this is speaking of Israel and the nation of Israel. All of those who believe will be delivered. And this is Jesus' second coming. Chapter 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Verse 3. And they that, sh- that be wise shall so- shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So here we find language that closely parallels what we read in Revelation 20. We see the judgment of Revelation 19, where uh, the, the world is judged, and then that gives way to, in chapter 12, verse 2 of Daniel, this statement, that many will awake in that day, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, this is interesting, because those are two very different resurrections, aren't they? In Daniel 12, 2, we see a resurrection unto life, that's what we call the resurrection of the just, or the first resurrection, which takes place before the millennium, according to Revelation 20. And then we see some being awakened to everlasting shame and contempt. That's the resurrection of the unjust. That's the second resurrection. And Revelation chapter 20 says that those who do not take part in the first resurrection will remain dead, will remain in their place of waiting for that thousand years. So in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, we have a gap of at least 1,000 years between those that awake to everlasting life and those that awake to everlasting shame and contempt. So Daniel 12 effectively skips that entire period, but we have that in Revelation 20. We're comparing Scripture with Scripture, and that's what we see. Revelation 20, the 1,000 years. Revelation 20 tells us the resurrection of the just takes place before that 1,000 years, and we'll continue as we study in a few weeks. Revelation 20 tells us the resurrection of the unjust takes place after that 1,000 years. So we read in Daniel chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. And he saith, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Blessed is he that waiteth, and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days." But go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. So God tells Daniel that these words will be closed up till the time of the end. That means that people will not understand them until God divinely reveals it to people through his spirit at the time of the end. He speaks of many being purified by the blood of the Lamb. He says the wicked will still be wicked. He says that they will continue to do wicked things. And Then we get one more insight as it relates to time within the book. God says that from the time that the abomination of desolation would take place, which Daniel chapter 9 told us would be at the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years into the seven years of the 70th week, from that time till the time of the end would be 1,290 days. And then God said, blessed is the man that would make it to the 1,330 days. 
fifth day. And this is interesting and somewhat curious. We talked about this just briefly on the other side of this. From Daniel 9, we know about these 70 weeks, and we interpreted at the time, based upon many different passages of Scripture, that that 70 weeks represents prophetically 490 years of Israel's history. If you want to corroborate this, you're going to have to go back and listen to those messages because we just don't have time to go through all of that again. So 490 years, which actually becomes somewhat of an important number in uh, Scripture, but 490 years of history. And that 70th week is of particular note in that that um, that last seven years, uh, it focuses in on quite closely. So in Daniel nine, we read of the seventy weeks. The first seven weeks, or seven years, from the command to rebuild Jerusalem, and then another sixty-two weeks, or another four hundred and thirty-four years after that, and the mark that would end, or generally end, that the, those sixty-nine weeks, the Bible says Messiah would be cut off and the temple would be destroyed. And so Messiah being cut off is, of course, Jesus dying. The temple being destroyed happened some 40 years later in 70 AD. So it is within that time period that the 69 weeks between when the command to rebuild Jerusalem took place and Messiah being cut off happened. But there's still that last 70th week, the last seven years, which are yet unaccounted for. And that 70th week was broken into two halves. And those two halves were broken up in Daniel 9 by this event called the abomination of desolation, whereby this prince that would come, the prince of the people that would come, and that, that's, that would be the prince of this western world, this fourth beast, would cause sacrifices to cease and would, would, would abominably desecrate the temple of God. Now, when we compared Scripture with Scripture, particularly as it related to this final week, we defended the conclusion that the term weeks here meant years. And as we studied these years, we find that God was working on a timetable of what we call prophetic months and prophetic years. So, uh, a prophetic month is always a 30-day month. A prophetic year would always be 360 days. This mirrors much closer the lunar calendar than it does what we run off of. We run off of a Gregorian calendar, which is a solar calendar, right? So we have 365 days in our year, and then every fourth year we have to have a leap year uh, in order to account for the fact that, that, the soul, that, that we don't revolve around the sun every 365 days. We revolve around the sun every 365 point something days. And so we have to add an extra day every four years in order to account for that, and we still lose something like 12 seconds a year or something like that. And so we have this we have this system in place, but prophetically speaking, it always runs off of 30 days in a month, 360 days in a year. So if we take 360 days in a year and we multiply that by three and a half years, that's 1260 days. And so the 70th week of Daniel, broken up into two three-and-a-half-year segments, should be two 1,360-year segments, or 2,520 days. Now, this is where Daniel 12 interests us, because notice it does not say in Daniel 12 that, uh, after, that, that from the time of the abomination to desolation, there shall be 1,260 days, does it? It says from the time of the abomination of desolation, there shall be 1,290 days. And then on top of that, it says, blessed is he that gets to the 1,335th day. So within the scope of Daniel 12, verses 11 and 12, we have an extra 75 days added to the 70th week of Daniel. 30 days and then another 45 days. A 75-day period between when the 70th week prophetically ends and when the blessing begins. And at this point, notice Daniel doesn't necessarily end with the eternal state. He ends that there's a blessing to those that get to this point, that make it to this point, as in those that are still alive. Once again, this is where Revelation 20 helps us. Informing us that the thing which will begin after these 75 days, after the end of the 70th week of Israel's history, is, we would believe, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. So the end of the 70th week of Daniel is at the 1,260th day after the abomination of desolation. And then we have a 75-day transition period from 
the earth as it has been to the earth as it will be for the next 1,000 years. And within that time, a part of that transition will be establishing Christ's rule, His kingdom. And we have a part in that. All throughout the New Testament, we find promises and allusions to the idea that those who share in Christ's death and resurrection will also share in His victory. And this is where we're going to go as we close today. We can call this our application. We've seen all of the academic stuff. But as we focus in on this idea from Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. So Paul teaches us this in 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. In this verse, we find a truth. All throughout the New Testament, Paul calls himself a servant of Christ, and indeed so we are. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are those who have been saved from our sins. We owe Christ everything, and to this end, and degree, we rightly call Jesus Christ our Lord, and we see anything and everything Christ might ask of us to be only reasonable service for the one who gave us eternal life. And yet, the Bible is just as clear that what Jesus did on the cross did not simply buy us into a position of servanthood in the kingdom. What Jesus did on the cross for those who will receive us buys us into an inheritance. In the kingdom, we are not just made servants of the house of God, we are made children of God, an inheritor with Christ in the house of God. Because we are in Christ, and because Christ is to be the inheritor of all things, we will share in that inheritance. This is the doctrine that we call the adoption of sons. And so we read in Revelation 8, verses 14 through 18. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So it is we find that we are joint heirs with Christ through the adoption as adopted children of the living God with the rights and privileges that come with sonship, not servitude. But notice in this passage that we see the concept of inheritance being linked very strongly to the concept of suffering. That those who suffer with Him will be glorified with Him. That those who suffer with Him will reign with Him. That those who will be most blessed by this inheritance are those who have yielded the promises of this life for the promises of the life that is to come. And indeed, this is the stated standard for which Jesus has received the ultimate inheritance of everything. Jesus is exalted above all because Jesus is the only man who did and indeed who could perfectly obey the will of the Father. That's why he's so greatly exalted. This is what Philippians 2 tells us, verses 7 through 11. Speaking of Jesus, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, for this reason, because of this. God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus was exalted to the highest because he perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father. It was for this reason that he's given the inheritance of the nations. It was for this reason that the, we see the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 giving the kingdom to Jesus because Jesus purchased it. <laughs> because Jesus fulfilled the will of the Father. Because Jesus was exalted to the highest in relation to his obedience and his submission to the will of the Father. And that we are found worthy through the blood of the Lamb means we share in that inheritance. 
but that Jesus' honor was found rooted in his obedience carries over to us as well. So we share in his inheritance, the adoption of sons, the eternal life, the resurrection of the just because of Christ. But then what we do, it would seem, will play into what that inheritance fully means for us. Before I go any further, let me just make what I'm saying or not saying clear. Everyone who is a child of God will receive the inheritance of salvation. We'll, we'll, we'll take part in Jesus Christ's resurrection. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about levels of inheritance. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The only people in this world who are children of God are those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Not everyone is a child of God. Don't believe what you hear when someone comes up and says, we're all children of God. We're all created by God, but we are not all children of God. We are not all the sons of God. We are all in God's image. We all have human dignity because we've been created in God's image. But the children of God those who are a part of God's inheritance, those who will go to heaven are only those who have received Christ. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We are not all children of God. Those who are joint heirs with Christ in this fashion, those who will be a part of that first resurrection are those who have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no merit in that system. There is no worth in that system. I don't in that system. I cannot earn that salvation. I cannot merit that salvation. I cannot buy that salvation. I will never be worthy of that salvation. That salvation is rooted in Jesus Christ alone and I am adopted into the family of God on Christ's merit. But one of the things that we've had come up quite often, it came up regularly in Hebrews as we've been studying that in Sunday school, it came up when we were in our Luke series, it came up in our First Peter series, is that the things that we do in this life still matter for eternity, right? And for those of you that are here for every single message, all, all four that I give in any given week, this might start to be sounding repetitious. We've been talking about this a lot, but it's coming up again. We've connected this concept regularly to the 1 Corinthians 3 concept of wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones, that God will judge His people. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 10 as well. God will judge His people. We've acknowledged that there are rewards in eternity for the things that we do. And when we sin, we will suffer a loss of reward. So 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 17 tells us judgment must begin at the house of God. Now, as we consider these ideas, we find a point where the teachings of the promises of the kingdom seem to intersect with this idea that we've espoused time and again that what we do in this life really does matter. Of reward and loss of reward. The Bible says that we will be priests of God and of Christ and we will reign with Him a thousand years. And the question comes up, what does it mean that we will reign with Him? What does it mean that we will be priests of God and of Christ? Well, the priest thing isn't all that difficult. A priest is one who represents God, right? A priest is one who, who takes the, the, the principles and the precepts of God and carries them forward to others. That's what a pastor does. That's what a priest did in the Old Testament. And so that, that idea is not too hard to understand because even as of now, 1 Peter tells us that we are already a royal priesthood. But what about ruling and reigning with him? What will that mean? What does that look like? What are these rewards? We've talked time and again that we don't really know what these rewards are. But there's an intersection between elements of the kingdom and elements of reward in Luke 19. And I want to introduce you to this to give you perhaps a little bit of an idea about what this might look like. In Luke 19, beginning in verse 12 through verse 27, a portion of scripture here, we read this. Jesus speaking a parable, he said, Therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds. And he said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him 
and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him, Be thou over, also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up what I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given. And from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. So, in this parable, we find a nobleman who goes into a far country to receive a kingdom and to come again. We see a contingency of people that utterly rejected him and said, we don't want this man to rule over us. And then we see servants who were given a, a, a contingency of money and told to do something with it. So you have the people that did not want him to be their king, you have his servants, and you have him coming back at some point. And we find in this passage perhaps a little glimpse of what that might mean. That a nobleman goes into that far country and he gives these servants various uh, um, talents. All of them had one. And those servants that were more faithful with the responsibility while the king was gone received more authority in the kingdom when the king returned. So the man that took his talent and made it ten talents received ten cities. And the man that took his talent and made it five talents received five cities. And the man that buried or held his talent, kept it in a napkin, buried would be the Matthew passage, which is a slightly different scenario. The man that kept his in a napkin, because his master was an austere man, and if if, if you want to learn more about this whole parable, I did preach on it um, earlier in this year, and I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. He has his taken away from him and given to the man that had ten. And then those that did not want to see the king come were all destroyed. So we see a few tears here. We see the tear of those who were greatly rewarded for their investment. We see the tear of the servant who is yet a servant, but who had his reward taken away because he didn't do anything with what he had. And then we see those that did not want the king to be over them who are destroyed. And in this, we might find a glimpse of what the millennial kingdom might look like. That those who have served the Lord with faithfulness will receive for their faithfulness some measure of authority in the kingdom. Ruling and reigning with Christ. That those who were servants of the Lord but who kept their talent in the napkin, who did nothing with what the Lord had given to them, will have their reward stripped from them. And yet will be saved so as by fire, 1 Corinthians 3. And then those who would not have the king rule over them, who will be destroyed. It may be. It may not be. This is about as close as we can come to some sort of glimpse of what it might look like in the kingdom when we rule and reign with Christ. Those who rule and reign will not be mortal. They will have already experienced the resurrection. They will rule and reign over those who have entered into the kingdom in mortality. Those nations, those peoples who are still uh, mortal, who still have their, their mortal bodies, will live as they've lived, and those who are immortal will rule and reign over them, given delegated authority by Christ, as Christ will rule and reign directly from 
Jerusalem. And yet it is very possible that we will function in a very necessary way in this world as local extensions of Christ's dominion and power and authority. As those who rule and reign over, over a, a region, thus exercising God's authority, Christ's authority, and also those who are priests of God and of, the, of Christ. Those who, by virtue of our authority, will also mediate or will also be there in a religious capacity. We don't know. But this one thing is clear. All throughout the Scriptures, all throughout the New Testament, all the teachings, as I've alluded to already, make this clear. Regardless of what these rewards might look like, regardless of what it might look like that we rule and reign with Christ, it will happen. And how we live our lives in this life do determine something about the life to come. Not just unto salvation, that's accepting Jesus Christ as Savior, but how we live as believers does matter in the life to come. And this should cause us to perk our ears. Because there's little doubt that whatever those rewards might be, whatever ruling and reigning with Christ might look like, whatever these things are, you want it. I can guarantee you that. If you're a believer. So it is that our study in Revelation 20 perhaps directs our heart in these two directions. First, a reminder of the hope the promise, the tremendous privilege that it is that one day we will join in Christ's dominion. We will rule and reign with Him as priests and as those who reign with Christ for that thousand years. And second, perhaps also in our hearts and our lives a renewed vigor to position ourselves for maximum blessing through careful, purposed, determined obedience in this life. Knowing that the rewards of this life Excuse me, the labors of this life are directly related to the rewards of the life that are to come. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.